You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to welcome Lauren Sayer. Lauren is currently Director of Curriculum at the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority, dedicated to fulfilling the VCAA mission of providing high quality curriculum, assessment, and reporting to enable lifelong learning. Previously, she served as the Executive Director of Research and Innovation at Melbourne Girls Grammar and founded the Melbourne Girls Grammar Institute, a global educational community hub dedicated to innovation and leadership in education practices. In addition to her school leadership roles, Lauren was previously Head of Teaching and Learning at the Royal Children's Hospital Education Institute, through which she worked to support the educational needs of chronically ill children across Victoria. Welcome, Lauren. Well, thank you. Um, and I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people today of the Kulin Nation here in um, Melbourne, Victoria. So lovely to be here. And we'll acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging as well. So let's start the conversation. And one of the things I'm interested in is having moved from schools into this director of curriculum role at a really systems level, how might that have changed your thinking around education or curriculum or schooling? Because you're coming at it now from a really different lens. I think as a teacher, I look at authorities, both in Victoria and nationally, as almost being quite faceless. And they're here and I get sent the documents and and we then do the work in schools. You know, we enact that and we bring it to life. I, I don't think I, I think what I realise is that there are so many people that are involved that have faces and that are teachers in these organisations. I've got the most amazing team of 20 curriculum managers that are subject matter experts. It's like, the best head of department group on steroids you've ever met. They are so passionate. They call themselves curriculum nerds. And they're all passionate about what they do. And I don't think I ever appreciated that. And I think in the other part I've really appreciated in my leadership journey in this space, and this is not necessarily um, just moving from a school to the VCAA, but I think in general is... I don't think I ever appreciated as a teacher that you never have more autonomy than you do in your classroom with your with your kids. Like, I think as you move up in the chain, there's more and more things you have to be aware of. There's different policies. There's different procedures. There's the, the current landscape of what's happening in terms of reform. Um, and it's the same, I'm sure, as a principal. But I think in your classroom, I don't think I ever appreciated just how much autonomy I had with a group of young people and how special that was and how I'm very aware of making sure that that continues. Now I'm working in an area that we do make sure that we embrace and support teachers to retain and maintain that professional autonomy. A few interesting points there, but one about the humanness of both what's happening in schools and also what's happening in your regulatory authorities, because I think there is that sense that these documents of curriculum come down from on high and there's a facelessness to it and a de- dehumanising of it, but actually there are you're now in this sort of human team of people who are working really hard uh, and who have been in schools and understood schools to put these things together. 
and I'm reflecting on that idea of the autonomy of the classroom and the freedom of the classroom. And I think when I remember it the most was the first time you have a class as a teacher <laughs> outside of PRAC. You're not being watched anymore. It's your room and it's your decisions and it's your students and and it's the way in which you choose to run that room. And and I think I do remember that feeling of, oh, this is now my choice, my space. So I do remember that feeling, but it was a very long time ago now. Oh, I remember that of, you know, I, my first class was a grade three, four primary classroom. And all of a sudden I had 25 young faces going, good morning, it's January and we're going to go. And I sort of went, this is, this is me. I've, I've mm. got this. And I think as you move up and you look at other responsibilities, if you, and I think it exemplifies as you become a department head you then you're not just thinking about your class you're thinking about well how does that sit in the ecosystem of your subject and then if you become a head of a whole teaching and learning you look at that ecosystem and you've got more and more areas but I think the bliss of having just you in your classroom is is something that I'm making sure I keep in my head. Yeah and there's that level of influence as well isn't there like there's that when you're a teacher in a classroom and I still I still teach it's something I request to do and often that's the best part of my day is being in a class with students you know one-to-one or one-to-many and then you've got that really direct influence on them and as you move up in leadership in schools you've got a, a more diluted influence on other people and their teaching and now you're beyond schools and you've got this very broad but very probably diluted as well influence on what might happen in a classroom based on the work that you're doing. And I think that's that's part of it and it's where I think opportunities, are, you know, I, I taught through all of my career and I'm this, I miss my class at the moment because I think like you, if I go back a few months ago, that was the, the 60 minutes of the day that that was my focus and people respected that. And I think one of the things I get to do now, though, in this role is get back and listen to teachers, but also young people. I'm, I'm very privileged at the moment to be a part of the um, panels to look at VCE Leader of the Year and listening to young people talk about their leadership journey. It's a constant reminder to keep our feet on the ground in in what we're doing and grounded in practice. And I think it's a challenge I set myself and my team of how will this benefit the students and teachers in Victoria? And I think I'm pretty lucky that that is the, the point of truth amongst the teams that I'm working with. So I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, and here you are being the face or the voice, if we're listening to this on a podcast, of, of systems-level uh, leadership because, I, yeah, I, I'm still reflecting on that idea that uh, that it's something that people in schools don't feel where things come from and they think someone sits in an ivory tower making things up but actually <laughs> there's quite a lot of work that goes into it. I think that's, that's the key bit is the amount. We're in a revision process at the moment for our Foundation to Year 10 curriculum the amount of consultation and processes and we set up curriculum area reference panels which have I think there's been over 250 teachers at the moment across the state that have been being part of that and then it goes out to the different sectors and we get feedback and it continues and it keeps getting improved and evolved until eventually it will come out and become a document in schools but as a teacher that was totally blind to me I got the document and went well this is what it means to me I want I never even thought about it. It's a bit like I think of as a primary school teacher, a lot of students, well, where does chicken come from? It comes from the shop. It doesn't come from the farm. It's a bit like that here of, well, where does the curriculum mm. come from? It actually comes from teachers. And that's been really quite heartwarming for me that it isn't mm. one person sitting there writing a curriculum or a group of writers. 
everybody who are, who is developing this, they're educators, they've been in classrooms. And that's that's really wonderful to know. You've been involved over your career in lots of what we might call change and even managing change yourself. And so what have you learned over the years in terms of what we need to think about when we are, whether it's revision of curriculum or uh, developing something new for a school or a project, in terms of whose voices do we generate perspectives from, uh, what does consultation and feedback look like if it's going to be really effective and if it's going to inform meaningful change? I think context in this is always key and I think that that's the biggest part about it is knowing your venue and where it sits and what's important there is will start to determine who you need to listen to and I think the biggest lesson I've learned in my career and I think I learned it really harshly um, in mistakes I've made is not to assume that just because you've got a strong moral purpose or a strong evidence base that that's enough to support change. I remember working in the Royal Children's Hospital you know I education for me is the most important thing in the world. And all of a sudden I'm planted into a hospital. Saving lives and health is the most important thing in their world. Education is nice to have, no no one's saying. It's not necessary in certain situations. And I went in there, I think, as a young cocky leader and went, well, surely everybody thinks like I do in this and, and this moment of, being in rooms with patients and doctors would walk in and the whole lesson was hijacked. Now, if that ever happened in a school, you'd be jumping up and down, but it's understanding what the context and where the importance is and how, what are your levers for change and how do you do that at a pace that we don't leave anybody behind? I think that's been another part in Gen AI as well. I'm really worried about right now of, I, I look at, lots of people and I think it doesn't matter what setting I go to if I offered a intermediate skills in Microsoft Word training session tomorrow it wouldn't matter in any of the workplace I would get a group of people that would show up and I think that's because we've failed in bringing people along in in journeys and I think the change management aspect for me is how do we make sure the context is there how do we listen but how do we not leave anyone behind in our need to constantly innovate? How do we make sure that we don't assume? Because when I'm having discussions at the moment about around Gen AI, you've got your big group, but when I have the one-on-one afterwards, people, I haven't really had a play yet. I haven't had a time, have the time, and I'm, I'm a bit worried of of. I'm already feeling behind. Now, if we keep going at that pace, how do we make sure? And um, here at the VCAA, um, my colleague, um, Jerry Martin, who's the Director of um, Curriculum Revision, he said something the other day, and I thought it was really important, and it was familiarisation of a new curriculum is not something that happens in the first year. And he said, it's something that happens every year. And as an authority, we need to support that familiarisation every year because there's always new teachers, there's out-of-field teachers. And I think it's that foresight of not leaving anyone behind and not just doing that familiarisation at the point that you bring in something new. I think, how do we move to make sure that we don't, every year we go back and we support because 
every year you've got those bright people in their classroom with a whole lot of autonomy, like we said, that haven't been on the journey from the year before. So there's a kind of constant change management process of communication and bringing people along. I think I also heard from you, I think you and I are maybe, maybe both people who don't mind a pace of change and are, have often perhaps been early adopters of things. And so I think, how do you manage that for yourself when you know that you might be enthused or energised by a particular pace of change, but you're really aware that to bring people with you requires some restraint or some real strategising. It's a really interesting point and recently here. We've done some work on psychological safety as a, as a group and where are you in your green zone of your, you're feeling safe and you're ready and where are you in your orange zone and, and what, what does red look like for you? And I think it's something, and for me, Personally, if I'm in the green zone, I'm bored. I'm, I'm looking for my next adventure. That is not where I thrive. I have ADHD. I'm neurodivergent. Um, that's not my preferred space, but I'm aware that for most people, that orange zone's not a place for them. That green zone of where they want to be is where they can take some risks. And I think identifying early what is that risk tolerance and profile for change of the people you are working with is critical and it's something I don't think I've appreciated I think we're always learning I appreciated a lot more of finding out where that is and when's the right time and I look at some of the things at the moment and one of the things that my boss here our CEO Steve Ganeel said to me when I started his don't go trying to fix everything straight at once Lauren but write it all down because you might not see it when you, you know, in seven months, the things that that are there. So I think that's been a a really core piece of advice for me is just because you can't action something now, it, it doesn't mean you don't write it down and make sure that it's worthy so that we can go back to those when the time's right. I think those points are really important that you make around seeking to understand readiness for change, appetite for change and what your context is ready for because you can have the best intentions in the world about what you think is really going to make the difference and it's so important we should do it but it's unlikely to be successful unless you've got that understanding of context and that understanding of what the perspectives of the people around you are that are going to potentially allow something or not allow something to be successful and to maybe decide when it's appropriate to make that move. And I think it's more and more it's better to walk in the right direction than run possibly in the wrong direction or to run and no one's with you. And I think, or you're with that group of innovators that are there and, but you haven't brought a team with you. And I think that's a, that's a really critical part of, I think my leadership journey. And it's definitely in these sorts of roles where I think in, in a lot of school jobs, it's always been, if, if the work hasn't got done, in that space. I could do it personally. I'm not saying this is a healthy lesson for anyone who's listening, but now I'm in a system-wide role with a whole lot of subject matter experts and technical expertise. I can't do the work of my team. Um, They have a skill set that I don't have. And across the VCAA, we have psychometricians and, and, you know, technical experts. I can't do that work, but I have to do it with them. So therefore, we have to move. And I suppose that Stephen Covey moved forward at that speed of trust. And mm. as a new person, that's, that's a challenging thing to remember, I think, because I think my whole career, you leverage your personal ability to be able to do it. And I think it's probably 
it, it's a good lesson to have is that when you're working through others, we all move forward at the pace that's good for all of us. And it reminds me of the proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. Mm. If you want to go far, go together. That idea that, you know, often if you are just bolting out of the gates uh, without necessarily anyone with you, I think I was it was on the podcast with Alma Harris where she said, just because you're leading doesn't mean anyone's following <laughs> you. <laughs> I found that amusing because of its truthfulness. I think the interesting thing around leadership or leading change is that it's really about who's coming with you not necessarily what you're doing um, on your own. It's really a, it's a group effort and, um, and that contextual and relational part and trust part is so important. And the part that everybody will have their risk part of that, their risk matrix of where they sit, but also everyone will have what sort of feedback they prefer and how they prefer it. And I think when looking at that change, that's also key of some people are quite happy moving along under the radar. Other people want that that recognition and it's important as a leader to make sure that we do we do that for for the for our teams the same I think as we do with our students but I'm not sure I've always made that connection in my life of what I do with my students is good leadership practice and what I now do with adults is also good leadership practice and I think that that's been a good lesson in itself so that differentiation of offerings or feedback practices uh, and the capacity to think of each individual adult in your team as someone who might need something different. And as learners, we're we're a community of learners. And I think it's one of the reasons that I've worked in lots of organisations. I can quite honestly say I've never worked even though I've worked in the private sector, it's been in education. And I think it's that it's that love of being in learning organisations because they're growing organisations. And you talked about before your ADHD and neurodivergence. What are your thoughts around the importance of having divergent ways of thinking, but also just diversity in general in those teams and how that might present challenges, but also real opportunities? I think we've got to get brave in this space. This is the first workplace that when I was asked, you know, I think you always get asked in your pre-employment, do you have, do you identify as having a disability? And I ticked yes. And that was really scary for me because I was like, that's a label. I'm, I'm not a big fan of labels. Mm. And I, so I, I ticked yes. And I think I was so pleasantly surprised around the support of that and the questions that came from my leaders. Um, even just yesterday, someone said to me, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I want to have a coffee with you to hear about what are the what are your preferred ways of working in this space and is there anything I can do to support you? And it was quite funny. I, I said, no, but when I quickly change topics, you got to just follow me on the run. <laughs> and and he said, and I thought it was whatever, he goes, I've noticed that with you and I usually write down where we started so that I can get back there. And I think he did that as a natural thing as an educator. He's an, he's, he's got a background as a teacher and he did that quite naturally. But in a wider organisation, I don't think we necessarily do that or have those discussions of how do we work best and what works for us and that different people create different perspectives and how that works. And I think we're seeing it in business at the moment where you're looking at Silicon Valley and they're actively employing neurodivergent people in order to be able to do some of their work in different ways. I think we'll get there, but we've got to be brave. And I sort of have set myself that goal to go, I don't want to be the poster girl for ADHD and women, but I also know that since I've started to tell people the amount of women who've come and had coffee with me 
and said, I'm diagnosed as well, but I haven't told anyone and mm. or I think I might be and how did you go about getting assessed? I think we've got to be braver about talking about ourselves and bringing our whole selves to work because someone else said to me, I have another mental health issue. I could never, ever disclose that in my workplace because the stigma is too high. And I thought about it and I thought, they're probably right, but we all bring our whole selves to work every day. And the more we know about our preferred, the same as the more we know with our students, it's what, what we said before, the better we can do to lead the team. And we're all so individual. And I think I never have appreciated it as much until I've sort of put my hand up and gone, I'm a little bit different. And how how supportive everybody has been in that space. But I think if we can be a bit brave and do it, more and more employers will go, oh, that's an asset. And I think there's that acknowledgement that actually different ways of thinking, different neurodivergences and different experiences, different cultural backgrounds, they actually have all have their own gifts and their own challenges, right? There's there's uh, the, the good and the bad for all those things. And mm. I think that uh, recognising a couple of things, I think, one is that there are positives for having a team that has different ways of thinking because you're going to come up with better solutions, better outcomes, better decisions, but that also probably to get there, you're going to have more uncomfortable conversations, silences, disagreements, discussions, but that valuing that process with the ultimate aim to get to a better place for in our industry, you know, students and educators in schools. I mean, I'm really aware when I'm hiring people not to hire people that are like me or that I feel like I connect with because I feel like I'm kind of looking in a bit of a mirror. I think that you need, you know, we need to surround ourselves with people who do think differently and in fact, who really are willing to honestly disagree with us or who are willing to go on crazy tangents or have bold ideas or quiet ideas or systematise things. Like there's lots of different ways in which people think that are all very valuable and to bring those together I think is really important. I think one of the things that I see is when we have those areas of difference, we also learn more about ourselves. And I think part of going and getting diagnosed, I've I've got an ADHD coach and I I remember my first week here, it's confession time with you here in the edgy salon. just you and me, <laughs> and I was I was having a conversation out with the team, and in my head the conversation was finished, and I walked off, and it wasn't finished, and this is a very classic thing. But I had a team that sort of didn't think much about it. I'm quite new, but I went back into my coach, and she said, and I went, well, those strategies, uh, how do you how do you make sure you do things and focus? And I think when we have diversity, we learn more, not just about others we learn more about ourselves because we see difference like you said of that looking in the mirror if we see other people doing different things one of the things like students is well we'll look at that and if it's something that's of interest we might ask more we might look at it as a model and and move it in that way and I think that that's really important in this space I think we're getting there in terms of neurodiversity I'm, I'm not sure I think we've got a long way to go in terms of cultural in education, I think we're we're mm. a pretty white Anglo-Saxon teaching profession on the whole. But I think where we see it um, in in different areas, we we grow about it. I 
I remember my language head of languages at a school and he kept on saying to me, well, monolingualism can be cured, Lauren. <laughs> it can. But, can monoculturalism? Yes. And But he, 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 he was the change. He'd run after school Mandarin classes for teachers and I think they're those different perspectives irrespective of culture, diversity, any of it that we can learn from. And I'm wondering about your views on innovation because I know a lot of the work you've done, perhaps not in the curriculum role that you're currently in, although I'm sure there's lots of different ways to innovate, is around innovation in education uh, and what that might look like and to what extent it might be something that we want to pursue. Can you talk to me a little bit about your views on innovation in education? I think it's in innovation in education, I think, is on this spectrum and we have to make sure that in schools and in organisations like ours as the Curriculum and Assessment Authority, we have a space for the radical innovation and how we work and manage that, but we also really appreciate the incremental innovation and and hearing what are those small steps because innovation is, can be and what is innovative for one group of people might not be innovative for another group of people. And I definitely saw that when I moved into the private sector, the innovation pace of business is very different to the innovation pace of education. But making sure that we can move and constantly improve, I think is the the end goal in this. But I think part of it is making sure that we're always learning. And I think one of the areas that we need to make sure that we're innovating in is not just sticking to our own networks in that space and making sure that student voice is there. I have to say, I ran a subject earlier this year of project management. And I think as adults, we talk about sustainability and environment uh, and what that might mean for us, I, I think our students can look at it in a very different lens of how they're inheriting the, the earth and what their background means in terms of that. Um, of I think where are some of our experiences and innovation supports that. And we've got a group at the moment that definitely know all about global warming and the environment. But when I started to speak about drought and being growing up with um, buckets in the bottom of the shower and there was only every second that you weren't allowed to wash your car on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays and I'm sounding ancient right now. But that's not a lived experience right now And but they're aware of it and I think part of it is making innovations about having conversations with as many different groups as possible in order to start to see what is the next thing and being curious all the time and going, why is that that way? And I think that's how I started with generative AI. I went, oh, this is amazing. What else can I learn? Who else can I learn from? Who's not in my network that's talking about this? And what are students thinking about that? But I think it's that constant curiosity breeds innovation. But I think the other part about it is ensuring that we have a strong basis of knowledge, skills and experiences to build on our innovation. And I think that's one of the things I'm appreciating in a curriculum authority is the the underpinning of a great education that I feel I've had. And I, I went through a great state school education, but I've been in great independent school education. And I think one of the things that's really important is I've got this really broad understanding of 
underpinning of knowledge that supports me taking the next steps to enact change. And agency is probably the biggest thing for me in innovation. It's great to be innovative, but and students are innovative, but if we don't give them the agency to do that, where is that going to sit? So there's student agency and voice, uh, but there's also all those things around. I'm really interested in that idea about radical change versus incremental change and also looking to history. Like you talked about your lived experience, Mm. it's different to people's lived experience now because in my view, innovation's about knowing what's come before and innovating from that. It's not starting from a blank page and thinking something's a new idea when actually it's a repeated idea that we just didn't know about or didn't Mm. do our research about. Uh, So I think that idea about innovation is interesting in terms of what is it, how do we do it, and that incremental change at a pace perhaps that we talked about before that that can bring people along. But even around, you know, to what extent is education an echo chamber where we just listen to ourselves and we don't look outside to what business is doing, to what, um, you know, global trends are telling us. Uh, You know, it's really an industry more than any other where people say, well, this is how I did it. I knew school as a child and so that's how school works. And I think the the bit in this is also being really wary of taking other stories and then bringing them over into education. So one of the ones that often happens is around the health system and, oh, well, health have health manage a whole lot of different things um, and nurses, nurses are a profession and teachers are a profession, so why don't we learn from nursing? And... I think it's really funny. Sometimes we take the wrong lessons from other other areas and try and put them in with us. Of um, One of the ones I hear a lot around the medical industry is, well, there's one way to do medicine and therefore there's one way to teach students. And if you're un- and I, I read recently someone wrote, if you're unwell, you will be given one type of medication, yet if you can't read there's lots of different ways to read. And and I thought to myself, I worked in a hospital for five and a half years and the medication according to what, the medication according to if you are unwell can be so varied. You could be allergic to something, your genetic makeup, what you're, what you're able to be able to take in terms, there are so many variables, but I think sometimes we simplify other industries and we go, oh, that argument suits ours, let's just grab it and take it into education. And I I, I think we've got to make sure we talk to other areas and find out the full context. And I think that's one of the interesting bits and be really wary of borrowing other stories. And I think of going, oh, yeah, that that sounds a bit like us. Let's let's take it and, and move in that space. And I think there's been lots of those things in education over the years where something might have worked in business and we we grab it and go well it's going to work for us let's go and that's a that's a really critical part of how we manage our innovation is let's be hungry for innovation in our context I mean, you make a really interesting point that education often gets, whether it's in the media or in conversation or elsewhere told to look to other industries to help it understand itself better what do you think the education industry might have to offer other industries if they looked to us? I think what they would have is an understanding of project management and and what it's like to to manage so many different people and and 
stakeholder management of, of how that works. I think teachers are some of the most amazing natural project managers I've seen of being able to manage a life cycle of a process, whether that be teaching, learning, assessment and reporting or an innovation program or implementing a new wellbeing program. I think there is that aspect, but I also think it is the important part of teaching being so diverse of you you deal with it is it is the profession almost that makes a whole lot of other professions but other professions don't ever sort of come back and look to us and I think the bit that I look at in learning and development and teaching is what are those practices in classrooms that are great that could scale out into adult learning and it was a bit like I said my leadership learning I never I I didn't join the dots of good classroom practice is also good leadership practice until later I think other leaders could learn from that as well but I think as a profession we have to be proud enough to let others in to come and have a look and I think that's a really important part at the moment for me is I, I think we're seeing a lot of negative stories out there in the media of um, teachers and teaching and sometimes that's us as a profession ourselves and I think if we want to be held to great esteem we hold that pen and that microphone and we should be inviting people in to see the great parts of our work as well as seeing the challenging aspects. Mm. Yeah teaching is a fantastic job and I think it's interesting even with this podcast I interview or chat with educators and yet I have people who listen from lots of different industries who say, oh, wow, like that's so interesting mm. what was said about sometimes it's because they're parents, but sometimes it's because things like when we're talking about feedback cycles, mm. um, how, you know, growth processes, those kind of things, how we grow people and build their capacity, uh, leadership in general, some of those things, there's some uh, really intentional things I think that educators and education do in those spaces as well. Oh, I think it, that we do and we do quite naturally and effortlessly in what we do and I think it's really I, I, I know a few teachers recently that have I don't think forever but have left teaching for the moment and have gone to work in in adult learning and development and very quickly they realize they have a whole lot of skills that they never thought they had that are widely appreciated in other industries and I think they'll come back to teaching but I think it's really interesting of knowing our worth as a profession and what we bring every single day and not to get hung up in the negative discussions that sometimes happen. So we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move us to the final five questions of what I like to call the enlightening round. The first one of which is what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? People online might know this but I met my husband on Twitter and as a result of that it was you know a, a in before the world of internet dating 15 years ago, Twitter's not even Twitter anymore, it's X. I met my husband on Twitter and I think that's been, but it's part of growing communities online. So I think I live and breathe that in my life and my marriage. <laughs> Building communities online. And that was really OG Twitter, wasn't it? It was a long time ago. It was early days of Twitter. Very, very early days of Twitter. Basically, it was that early days of Twitter that in Melbourne there were Twitter meetups and 30 people would show up in a bar and have a discussion. So it was, it's definitely not that. I would not be brave enough to invite all of Melbourne um, who are online to come and have a drink anymore. And I think that brings us back to something else you mentioned earlier in the in the conversation, which was around 
the importance of networks beyond who you might naturally see in a day or a week or in your life and that the way that that broadens out our um, understanding of, of our role and what we do? I think the more people we can connect with. As a young teacher, I did probably a pretty bullshy thing at the time. I, I went and saw a keynote and it was Professor Stephen Heppel and I went up to him afterwards. I said, that was fantastic. Could I stay in contact? And he's a pretty generous person in the educational community. Over my whole career, I've had ice creams, fish and chips, coffee, learnings, but I was brave enough to go and ask for help and I think and, and to reach out and make that connection. And I set that challenge now and what I'm starting to get, and I, I find it a little bit scary, with I get a bit of imposter syndrome with it, is people coming up to me going, I read your posts and can I get in contact and can I have a chat? And I make sure that I now do that in my role. But I think the more we can do that and be brave, the better we'll be. Absolutely. And I get so much out of knowing and understanding and connecting with people in other contexts to myself. So next, what is something currently on your desk? I think what's on my desk at the moment is a new curriculum and, and and I'm reading it and I'm loving it in terms of being able to read it and look through and understand it and understand the I suppose the complexities of a curriculum and how it is made and looking at it at a very different landscape of is this more teachable for teachers and is this um, is this refined and is it better than the other one? And I think the other part about it, which is critical, and I hope it's something that's welcome for schools, is we're not making it bigger every time we revise something because I think there's a nature of that when you do a revision, oh, well, we've got to add, we've got to add and we've got to add. I think one of the things I'm looking at at the moment is, is this easier for teachers? And because the important bit about this is we've got the intended curriculum, and then the enacted one in our classrooms, I want them to be as close as possible. But if the curriculum can't be enacted in schools, then there's a problem. So I think on my desk at the moment is looking at that from a very critical lens and making sure that it will actually work for teachers. A teachable curriculum. <laughs> yes. That has, that has the same or less in it perhaps than it had before. That's a crazy idea. Um, but sounds sounds like really uh, important and in you know intentional and diligent work and and hard to hard to do in lots of ways I imagine I think it is because we don't and it's the, it's this fine line of making it refined teachable but not to dumb down the curriculum not to just take things out that are no that that we go oh well you know that might not be important I think it's the it's the way of making sure that we keep we can sometimes reduce the content without reducing the quality of it and we can make it easier for teachers by by the same as we do with students, being clear and having clarity. And how about, Lauren, someone who inspires you in the work that you do? The people who inspire me in the work that I do are students and I don't think that's ever going to change. Um, earlier this week I was listening to a young person talk about their, their student leadership journey and they gave their lesson and I thought to myself, I have, I don't think I've learned that lesson and I'm 43. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I looked at it and I think that is it. Now, I try to make sure whether it's back in schools and doing that or working with my, I've got, I've got a five-year-old nephew and three, two twin 18-year-old nephews doing VCE at the, at the moment making sure that I continue to hear and listen to students. And I think 
make sure that we provide opportunities for young people at, at a governance level in our in our organisations as well. Mm. Um, that's really important. I think they inspire me each day and that's why I go to work. Yeah, and the, I mean students are so um, fabulous. I, one example from recently for me, but it's just one example of many, you know, I'm principal in a school and we had a leadership induction assembly and so I spent some time writing a speech about leadership and I thought I'm going to, you know, put some messaging out there and then following me were three students who talked about leadership and I thought, well, that was all of them were better and more inspiring than what I had to say. I was made essentially redundant by their amazing, you know, reflections and lessons and, and speaking to their peers. So, uh, yeah, absolutely those voices of young people are so important. And that was what happened with me. I had a young person who said my, my biggest leadership lesson was learning that leadership doesn't have to be from the front and I can lead from behind. And if it's not my story, I need to find the right person for the voice, uh, for their voice. And how do I amplify their voice? And I thought to myself, that is an amazing yeah. lesson at 17. Um, I wish I had have learned that. And I, I'm still mm. learning how to make sure I do that really well. And what about one thing you've got coming up that you're excited about? I'm excited. I think I'm excited about getting getting out there and listening to teachers in this space and whether it be at a conference level. I'm very excited about the ACEL conference coming up in Queensland because I think that's that space for me where I get to see people from across Australia. Um, but I think it's... I'm excited about how we as an authority and how I maintain connections um, and I don't get locked up in a in a bureaucracy. I, I stay I stay on the ground with teachers and definitely I'm excited about that. My my constant connection to professional associations, I think, grounds me in that space and always ensures that I'm excited. And if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? It's gonna it's probably gonna sound rather strange, but it, it is knowing the curriculum really, really well. And I think in teaching, if I look at my early years of teaching, what I taught in my classroom was based on a team a team unit plan that was handed down from a few other teachers and then I distilled that in. I don't think that I, I sat and knew the curriculum as well as I could. And then when I when I suppose knowing all of the foresight now that I have of insight, sorry, of what curriculum looks like, I think if we can as teachers, we know the pedagogy and the teaching of it really well. I think we've, we've done four years of university and we work on that in professional learning quite constantly. I'm not sure I, I've given the same amount of attention to knowing the curriculum. And then when I when I meet some, some of our VCE students that do really well, they know the study designs of the VCE almost better than the teachers. That's almost their secret source of success is that they know what they're going to be assessed about. And I think mm. I think for me what the essence of it is to make sure that we look at it all, we look at curriculum, pedagogy, assessment and that TPAC model, but we don't forget the bits that are not in front of us all the time or take them for granted and go, well, I've got my unit plan, I don't need to go back and check because there's been a whole lot of work and evidence and I think planning that goes into that that 
I think I've taken for granted in the past. But I think it's also that time for teachers to engage individually and as a group or in collaborative groups around curriculum to really unpack it, tease it out. It makes the pedagogy, the teaching piece better because you need to really know and understand what it is that you're unpacking for the students and then and then rolling out for them. So that piece of engaging with curriculum together and also on your own is really important as a teacher. But I was always a curriculum nerd, so... <laughs> I think, I think if I think back to those teachers or if you ask students about those teachers that they really loved, one of the things that they have is they, oh, well, they've got this amazing knowledge and you could ask this question and we could go down this rabbit hole and they knew it about that subject and they're passionate about their area of curriculum. And, and I think in this world of AI, knowledge, is, knowledge and experiences is more important, not less. And I think mm. for me that essence of that great teacher who can bring something to life based on their underpinning knowledge is still that awe and wonder and still something that I look for in conferences is when I see someone who really knows their subject matter and can bring it and show it in different ways that they've got me I'm I'm a fan I will sign up to their I will hassle them for fish and chips and ice cream and, and go on in that space but I think that's the bit I think for teachers is we're, we're sometimes forgetting that underpinning curriculum supports our pedagogy and our, t- and our assessment and how that works. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.